Okay, I'm going to be reading Majjhima Nikaya 43, Mahavedala Sutta, the greater series of questions and answers. Thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anathapindaka's Park. Then, when it was evening, the Venerable Maha Kotita rose from meditation, went to the Venerable Sariputta and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and amiable talk was finished, he sat down at one side and said to the Venerable Sariputta. So this is a, as it says, the greater series of questions and answers. This is a dialogue between Mahakotita and Sariputta, two arahats. So you can imagine what the dialogue is going to look like. Um, and the idea is Mahakotita is coming to Sariputta to discuss this, not because he's trying to get any clarification about any of the questions that he's asking. He's asking the questions the same way you would have a now, in today's world, like a fireside chat, where you have two people, two experts talking to one another. And so there's an audience there, and the audience there is Mahakotita's students. One who is unwise, one who is unwise is said, friend. With reference to what is this said, one who is unwise. One does not wisely understand. One does not wisely understand, friend. That is why it is said, one who is unwise. And what doesn't one wisely understand? One does not wisely understand, this is suffering. One does not wisely understand, this is the origin of suffering. One does not wisely understand, this is the cessation of suffering. One does not wisely understand, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. One does not wisely understand, one does not, wi one does not wisely understand, friend. That is why it is said, one who is unwise. So, wisdom <clears throat> or the lack of wisdom. Wisdom is essentially the counterpart to ignorance. So, here he's asking one who is unwise, one who has ignorance. And what is that ignorance? The ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. One does not wisely understand this is suffering. One does not wisely understand this is the origin of suffering. One does not wisely understand this is the cessation of suffering. And one does not wisely understand this is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. So somebody who is unwise is someone who hasn't actually walked the path. Someone who hasn't actually done what has to be done. And before even that, one who hasn't walked the path by letting go. So one who does not 6R is one who is unwise. Right? Because when you 6R, you're walking the path, you're experiencing the cessation of suffering by recognizing the origin of that suffering and letting it go. Every time you use the 6Rs, you are cultivating the understanding of the four noble truths. When a hindrance arises in your mind, in whatever form it might arise, it is suffering, it is dukkha in the mind, experienced as a painful mental feeling. 
When you recognize that Dukkha, you are seeing the first noble truth of suffering in the form of that hindrance. When you release and relax, you let go of the second noble truth, which is the origin of that hindrance. What is the origin of that hindrance in that moment? Lack of proper attention, lack of mindfulness, inattention or improper attention. Your attention has been diverted from your object of meditation and has gone to the hindrance. And so the, the attention continues to fuel that hindrance. Your attention continues to fuel the formations that continue to bring up all of these different proto-thoughts or the different forms of hindrances in the mind. So when you release your attention from that hindrance, you abandon the origin, which is you abandon the attention that was unduly given to the hindrance. And then when you relax, you experience mundane nibbana. You experience the cessation of that hindrance and the cessation of craving, thereby experiencing the third noble truth. When you re-smile and return back to your object of meditation, you are essentially bringing up a wholesome state of mind and sustaining that wholesome state of mind whenever you return back to the object, which means you have dropped the intention of craving, replaced it with the wholesome intention, right, which includes letting go, which includes non-ill will, which includes non-cruelty. And then with the smile coming back to the object of meditation. So what are you doing? You have already recognized, which means you have utilized right mindfulness and you have already used right effort using the rest of the six R's to come back to your object of meditation and therefore have right collectedness. So using the six R's in that way, you are also cultivating the fourth noble truth of the path. So every time you six R, you are cultivating wisdom bit by bit. How this process works. You are teaching yourself how this process works. Your mind is observing how its attention moves. Saying, good friend, the Venerable Maha Kotita delighted and rejoiced in the Venerable Sariputta's words. Then he asked him a further question. One who is wise, one who is wise is said, friend. With reference to what is this said? One who is wise. One wisely understands, one wisely understands, friend. That is why it is said, one who is wise. What does one wisely understand? One wisely understands this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. One wisely understands, one wisely understands, friends, friend. That is why it is said, one who is wise. 
So when we say that one who is wise is somebody who is utilizing the six R's, they're also cultivating wisdom in how their mind's mind works. But more importantly, you can utilize the six R's anytime craving comes up, anytime an underlying tendency comes up, anytime clinging comes up, anytime habitual tendencies come up. So what are you doing? You're doing exactly what Sariputta discussed in Majjhima 9, Samaditi Sutta, which is right view. Using the template or framework of the Four Noble Truths and understanding what is present in mind, whether it's in the form of craving, clinging, or becoming, right? And then letting go of the origin of that by letting go any kind of underlying tendency that leads to the craving or letting go of the craving which leads to the clinging or letting go of the clinging which leads to the becoming or habitual tendencies or letting go of the habitual tendencies which could lead to the birth of action and experiencing the cessation of that link in that moment utilizing the path that has been encapsulated in the six R's and this is how you teach yourself how dependent origination works by recognizing those links that lead to suffering and letting them go whenever they do arise. So wisdom is seeing the links of dependent origination, understanding the links of dependent origination, not only when it happens when you have a cessation experience and after that, but also in every moment, every time you recognize any kind of craving, clinging, or becoming. Consciousness, consciousness is said, friend, with reference to what is consciousness says. It cognizes, it cognizes, friend. That is why consciousness is said. What does it cognize? It cognizes this is pleasant. It cognizes this is painful. It cognizes this is neither painful nor pleasant. It cognizes, it cognizes, friend. That is why consciousness is said. So here, Mahakotita is asking Sariputta, what is the function of consciousness? What is consciousness? Nowadays, uh, there is a prevalent view, like it was during the time of the Buddha, that consciousness or awareness is a substratum of creation or a substratum of existence. That everything originates from consciousness. Having this sort of a view, it is difficult to see consciousness as anything other than what it actually is, which is the bare understanding or the awareness of whatever is arising in the case of a feeling or a perception. As we will see as he talks later, the perception and feeling are tied together, but along with it are, is conjoined the consciousness, the awareness of what it is that is being experienced. That's all consciousness is. And the function of consciousness is to shed light on what is being experienced.
So you can think about consciousness as the spotlight. And you can think about the directionality of where that spotlight is going as attention, manasikara. And what it is, what it is putting light on is the experience in the form of either painful, pleasant, or neither painful nor pleasant. That's the way to look at it. Wisdom and consciousness, friend, are these states conjoined or disjoined? And is it possible to separate each of these states from the other in order to describe the difference between them? And here's what Sariputta says. Wisdom and consciousness, friend, these states are conjoined, not disjoined, and it is impossible to separate each of these states from the other in order to describe the difference between them. For what one wisely understands, that one cognizes, and what one cognizes, that one wisely understands. That is why these states are conjoined, not disjoined. And it is impossible to separate each of these states from the other in order to describe the, describe the difference between them. Wisdom, that is the understanding of how this process works, and consciousness, the awareness of something, go hand in hand. In order for you to understand something, you need to have consciousness. And when you have consciousness, you understand something. It's as simple as that. So when we say wisely understand what's going on, consciousness is intertwined within the understanding of what is arising. When you see the links of dependent origination, there is a reflective consciousness that understands what is arising in the form of the contact feeling and any other states that arise in terms of when you see it post-cessation. In other words, when there's contact, that is the empty, signless, and undirected contact with the Nibbana element, that gives rise to a feeling. Dependent upon that feeling, there is a consciousness that arises with it, that knows that this is what is being experienced. So anytime you have an insight, tied to that insight is an awareness. That's the only way insights can be comprehended, is through the utility and function of cognition and consciousness. And the other way to look at consciousness is that it is a function of mindfulness and attention. We already said, when we look at the spotlight, right, the spotlight itself is consciousness and the direction in which it goes or the directionality is the attention. If you are not paying attention, then that spotlight is not on something. And therefore you have no wisdom about what is arising. But as soon as you pay attention with Yoniso Manisikara, with proper attention, as soon as you have mindfulness that remains un unmuddled, 
and is aware of what is happening in that moment, then wisdom can arise because the consciousness flows through that attention and mindfulness. And so when we talk about mindfulness as being remembering to observe how mind's attention moves from one object to the other, what are we saying? There is an awareness of how that attention moves. In essence, what this is, is metacognition. Not the cognition of meta that is loving kindness. Metacognition in terms of the cognition of cognizing. The awareness of awareness itself. So when you meditate, there is a tendency for the meditator to become the meditation. When you meditate, there's the idea that I am experiencing loving kindness or I am generating this loving kindness. There is the idea in your mind that I am the one going through this jhana or I am the one experiencing sloth and torpor. If you just change it a little bit in terms of how you see it, you can say there is loving, loving kindness present in the mind. There is equanimity present in the mind. Mind is watching mind. There is sloth and torpor present in the mind. In that shift in per perception, now instead of becoming the movie, you are watching the movie. You are observing how mind remains meditating. You're observing how mind is going in the first jhana or in the second jhana. You are not going in the first jhana. You are observing how mind is going in the first jhana. And then the question arises, who is it that is watching the mind go in the first jhana? I already know you guys are going to ask that question. <laughs> it is the function of mindfulness itself. There is no I watching it. The issue that happens is that there's a projection of an observer as an I, as a me, as a myself that is dependent upon the formations of conceit that take the observer as the one watching the mind meditating. But in reality, it's like the mirror is consciousness. And there is a reflection of what is going on. And the problem is the mirror takes itself to be the reflection. And as soon as the mirror takes itself to be the reflection, it loses its functionality in terms of what's going on. Now it's confused. What is real and what is unreal? What is the reflection and what is it that is being reflected? Right? But the mirror's function is just to reflect. There comes a point when you let go of that also and there is non-reflective awareness. This is called anidasanam vinyanam. This is where the mind or consciousness is non-manifestive. It doesn't cling to anything. It doesn't project anything of a sense of self, of this is me, this is mine, this is myself. It just remains there as consciousness, as an awareness, not dependent upon any sense of self as me, mine, or myself. Just pure reflection. And this is experienced, very closely experienced, when you are in the signless collectedness of mind. 
because there is no object for the mind to reflect on. There's no object for there to be any kind of reflection. It's just the mirror functioning as it is without any kind of sense of self. So the signless awareness of mind is as close as you can get to the anidasanam vinyanam. So now, Mahakotita asks the question, wisdom and consciousness, are these states conjoined or uh, disjoined? Right? Are these states, uh, can, you, can you describe or can you separate each of these states from the other in order to describe the difference between the two? And Sariputta gives this answer that wisdom and consciousness are conjoined. But listen to the next question. Then he asks, then what is the difference between wisdom and consciousness, these states that are conjoined, not disjoined? The difference, friend, between wisdom and consciousness, these states that are conjoined, not disjoined, is this. Wisdom is to be developed. Consciousness is to be fully understood. So what is the function of wisdom? He just said it. The function of wisdom is to understand. Right? And the function of consciousness is to cognize. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is understanding what is cognizing. So what is cognizing is consciousness as a link of dependent origination, as a function of, link, of the links of dependent origination, and as an aggregate. Wisdom is that which understands what that link is in reality, which is that it is impermanent because it is conditionally arisen, therefore impermanent, liable to cause dukkha, and therefore not me, not mine, not myself. So wisdom is to be developed and consciousness is to be understood. How do you understand consciousness? Through wisdom. How do you develop wisdom? By being aware. Feeling, feeling is said, friend. With reference to what is feeling said? It feels, it feels, friend. That is why feeling is said. What does it feel? It feels pleasure. It feels pain. It feels neither pain nor pleasure. It feels, it feels, friend. That is why feeling is said. Now, when we talk about feeling as that which feels, what is he talking about here? He's talking about the faculty of feeling that is present in mentality materiality. Remember a few days ago we talked about the components of mentality. One of them is the faculty of feeling, which is the instrument through which feeling can be understood. That this is a painful feeling, a pleasant feeling, or a neutral feeling. In this, excuse me, <clears throat> In the same way that a brain has different functionalities, right? different lobes that have different functions, 
Feeling as a faculty in nama rupa, in mentality, materiality, is that which experiences the process of feeling. So there is the faculty of feeling, which is an object or which is a thing in the mind or is possessed in the mind. And there is feeling, which is the function of that faculty, which is the one that is experiencing the feeling. So the faculty of feeling is in Nama Rupa and the process, the, the function, the verb of actually feeling is the link of feeling down after contact arises. Yeah, it's interesting because they, they use Vedana for both both sides. Vedana in terms of the process of feeling and Vedana in terms of the faculty for feeling. And it, so you could call it an ayatana just for the, the, the ability to understand what we're saying here in terms of a faculty, that it's a base. Yeah. Perception. Perception is said, friend. With reference to what is perception said, it perceives, it perceives, friend. That is why perception is said. What does it perceive? It perceives blue, it perceives yellow, it perceives red, and it perceives white. It perceives, it perceives, friend. That is why perception is said. So again, we have the base of perception, which is in Nama. And then we have the function or process of perception that is conjoined to the process of Vedana or feeling after contact. And what is perception? Sanya. What is Sanya? What is perception? Perception is rooted in memory. Perception recognizes what is being experienced. The example would be a child goes to the stove that has a fire and they put their hand on top of the fire. Immediately they feel a warm sensation. So that is the feeling of it being warm. And there's a cognition that it is warm. There's the awareness that it is warm. If they stay there longer, the fire gets hotter it feels unbearably hot, and that is a painful feeling. Now, that feeling and that cognition are present, but there is a perception that it feels unbearably hot. The next time that child goes to that same stove fire, they will be cautious because their perception of fire is too much fire and it can become too hot. That is their perception rooted in the memory the painful memory of the painful feeling of it being unbearably hot. When you were a child in school, in kindergarten or first grade, you learned about colors. This is the color red. This is the color blue. You were told about it, and then you recognized later on, oh yes, that's the color red. That's the color blue. That is to say, if you're not colorblind, of course. But... Even when it comes to musical notes, if you're a musician, 
you un- you can perceive the note by just listening to it. Like if you're playing the piano and I play the C note, you can recognize that that's the C note because you've heard it before and now it's stored in your memory. And whenever you hear it from that memory, the perception that this is the sound of C arises in conjunction with the feeling itself. When you start to study about different kinds of animals, let's say you study about different kinds of ants, there's red ants and there's black ants and there's these kinds of ants, and you study about them. So that is the feeling of it, the learning of it. So perception is rooted in learning and memory. Then when you see a certain ant, your mind immediately projects that this is the kind of ant I'm seeing. This is a red ant. Because your mind has already, has already felt it before, experienced it before. And in that memory, it immediately brings it up and says, I perceive this as a red ant. So the feeling is the experience. The cognition is the awareness of the experience. And the perception is noting or naming what that experience is. Even saying that this experience or this feeling is pleasant, painful, or neutral is the perception of it. So sometimes when you're meditating, you might, you might sense or you might notice the mind is giving a commentary, a non-verbal commentary of I'm experiencing this now. Oh, now I am in this jhana. Oh, now there's a rising loving kindness. What is that that's going on? That is perception. The recognizing of what is being experienced. Feeling, perception, and consciousness, friend, are these states conjoined or disjoined? And is it possible to separate each of these states from the others in order to describe the difference between them? Feeling, perception, and consciousness, friend, these states are conjoined, not disjoined. And it is impossible to separate each of these states from the others in order to describe the difference between them. For what one feels or experiences, that one perceives or recognizes. What one recognizes, one cognizes or becomes aware of. That is why these states are conjoined and not disjoined. And it is impossible to separate each of these states from the others in order to describe the difference between them. So these three run around each other, feeling, perception, and consciousness. If you're cognizing something, there is a feeling and perception tied to it. If you're perceiving something, it's because you have felt and become aware of something. If you are experiencing something, it's because you are aware and perceiving the quality of that feeling or experience. Friend, what can be known by purified mind consciousness released from the five faculties? Friend, by purified mind consciousness released from the five faculties, the base of infinite space can be known thus. Space is infinite. The base of infinite consciousness can be known thus. 
consciousness is infinite, and the base of nothingness can be known thus. There is nothing. In other words, purified mind consciousness. What does that mean, purified mind consciousness? Mind consciousness, that is purified of the five hindrances. None of the five hindrances are present. So that mind consciousness is now experiencing or is being aware of a jhanic state of mind, free of the hindrances. And released from the five faculties. What are the five faculties? The five physical faculties. That is the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, and the body. In other words, now you have gone from a rupa jhana to a arupa jhana. That is why that mind consciousness can be aware of infinite space, infinite consciousness, and nothingness. However, neither perception nor non-perception being the way it is, because it's neither perception nor non-perception, that there is no full consciousness there. Because remember, what is tied to perception is both feeling and consciousness. So the mental feeling or the mental perception is very hazy. And so there's no full comprehension, full cognition of what is arising in neither perception nor non-perception. But it is still purified mind consciousness that is present in that state of neither perception nor non-perception. And it is not the same mind consciousness. It keeps arising and passing away dependent upon the object of meditation within that process, which in this case is both the dimensions of infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, and neither perception or non-perception, and the mind itself. Or let's say the object. In this case, it could be compassion tied to infinite space. It can be empathetic joy tied to infinite consciousness. It could be equanimity tied to nothingness. Or it could be quiet mind, being aware of mind itself, the Pabhasara Chitta, the luminous radiant mind that is present in the state of neither perception or non-perception. Friend, with what does one understand a state that can be known? Friend, one understands a state that can be known with the eye of wisdom. What is the eye of wisdom? The panyachaku, the eye of wisdom. It's a very interesting term of, or phrase, the eye of wisdom. It's really talking about mindfulness. The eye of wisdom is cultivated through mindfulness. And when you have the eye of wisdom, you have perfect mindfulness. So mindfulness is tied to wisdom or helps bring up wisdom and is tied to consciousness or cognition and awareness. So the eye of wisdom here is really synonymous with mindfulness. And the function of mindfulness, right, is to pay attention. To pay attention to what? How attention moves itself. And how is that, what is that equipped with? Awareness. So you're seeing these interconnections going on, these intertwining things going on. Mindfulness, attention, and consciousness. 
the interplay between them in order from wisdom to arise. And when the eye of wisdom is developed, mindfulness is perfected, which means you're always attentive of what is going on. What is it that that person said five seconds ago? What is it that uh, that person said 10 seconds ago? What was the question that was being asked? Or what was the statement that was being given? Being completely present in every moment without the sense of I is the eye of wisdom. In other words, proper attention, yoniso manisakara. Friend, what is the purpose of wisdom? The purpose of wisdom, friend, is direct knowledge. Its purpose is full understanding. Its purpose is abandoning. So what is the purpose of mindfulness? What is the purpose of proper attention? What is the purpose of Yoni Somanisakara? It is full under it is direct knowledge. What does direct knowledge mean here? Direct knowledge of cessation of suffering. Full understanding. What is full understanding here? Full understanding of dukkha, of suffering. Abandoning. What is abandoning? Abandoning the factors that lead to suffering. Craving. Conceit. Ignorance. Wrong views. Friend, how many conditions are there for the arising of right view? This is very interesting. Kotita is just asking in a very systematic way. Because as soon as you do the prior things that he just mentioned direct knowledge, the full understanding and abandoning, you come to right view. So it's implied that right view has come about. So then he's asking, how many conditions are there for the arising of right view? Friend, there are two conditioning, sorry, conditions for the arising of right view, the voice of another and wise attention. These are the two conditions for the arising of right view. What does that mean? The voice of another. The voice of another can be the Buddha or any of the teachers who teach Dhamma. In other words, listening to the Dhamma, being introduced to the Dhamma, being told that there is right view. That's one level of ignorance gone, which is now you've been introduced to that there is something known as the Four Noble Truths. And then wise attention, yoni somanasakara, which helps you cultivate the Four Noble Truths. How do you do that? Through the process of the six R's. Remember, every time you six R, you are cultivating that wise attention that gets you closer and closer to right view in the context of the Four Noble Truths. Friend, how many factors is right view assisted when it has deliverance of mind for its fruit, deliverance of mind for its fruit and benefit. When it has deliverance by wisdom for its fruit, deliverance by wisdom for its fruit and benefit. So the question is, how many factors assist the process of right view to arise 
when it arises as a result and benefit of Cheto Vimuti, deliverance of mind, and Panya Vimuti, deliverance by wisdom. What does this mean? Deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom. Cheto Vimuti. Cheto Vimuti means the mind goes through the first four jhanas and then the ayatanas and then cessation and experiences some kind of wisdom arising from that. Cheto Vimuti. Panya Vimuti means the mind goes through just the four jhanas and from one of those four jhanas experiences wisdom. In other words, experiences cessation and then from there experiences seeing the links of dependent origination. Friend, right view is assisted by five factors when it has deliverance of mind for its fruit, deliverance of mind for its fruit and benefit, when it has deliverance of mind for its fruit, deliverance by wisdom, sorry, deliverance by wisdom for its fruit, deliverance by wisdom for its fruit and benefit. Here, friend, right view is assisted by virtue, learning, discussion, serenity, and insight. Right view assisted by these five factors has deliverance of mind for its fruit, deliverance of mind for its fruit and benefit. It has deliverance by wisdom for its fruit, deliverance by wisdom for its fruit and benefit. What are these five factors? Virtue. What is virtue? Keeping your precepts. Learning. What is learning? Reading the suttas. Watching Dhamma talks, attending talks at Dhammasukha. Discussion. What is discussion? Q&A sessions, right? Trying to understand what does this mean? What does that mean? Questions and answers. Discussing amongst yourselves. What does this mean in the Dhamma? What does that mean in the Dhamma? Serenity. What is serenity? Samatha. Tranquility of mind. Insight. What does insight mean? Vipassana. Right? Insight. So, tranquil wisdom, insight, meditation. What is that? Right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> Look on YouTube. Tranquil wisdom, insight, meditation, serenity, and Insights, samatha and vipassana. The yoking of these leads to the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. But you also need to learn, first and foremost, what is right view, what is wrong view, and what is right view. What are the wrong factors and the right factors? You have to be able to uh, discuss that. But dependent upon all of that is a mind that is clear. And the only way the mind is clear is when it's free of hindrances. And the only way it's free of hindrances is when the mind keeps its precepts. So in these five factors are sila, samadhi, and panya, all wrapped together in a nice little bow. And from there, because you have right view as the input, right, 
in going into cessation, when you come out and experience Nibbana, what comes out? The established right view and full experiential understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Friend, how many kinds of being are there? There are these three kinds of being, friend. Sense sphere being, fine material being, and immaterial being. What is sense sphere being? Any of the hell realms all the way up to the sixth sensual heavens. Remember, these can also be psychological states. What are What is material being or fine material being? These are the rupa lokas, the brahma lokas, the first, second, third, and fourth brahma lokas, or the first, second, third, and fourth jhanas. What are the immaterial being? These are the arupa states, the arupa lokas, the base of infinite space, the base of infinite consciousness, the base of nothingness, and the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Friend, how is renewal of being in the future generated? How does one come to be? How, does, how is there becoming? How is there future existence that arises? Friend, renewal of being in the future is generated through delighting in this and that on the part of beings who are, who are hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. When an intention, that is to say formations, or any intention has craving in it and is hindered by ignorance due to lack of mindfulness, then that mind will automatically crave, cling, and become. Once you let go of ignorance and craving altogether, then there won't be the possibility of future arising, future renewal of being. Because there won't be any delighting in this and that. There won't be taking personal this or that, that I like this or I don't like this or I am this. Then when the identification process goes, once craving is gone, once ignorance is gone, then that's it. That is the end of suffering. Right? Birth is destroyed. Birth of new action is destroyed. There is no coming to new being. No more renewal of being. But that means you have to purify your formations. And the only way you purify your formations is by cultivating right intention. What does it mean to cultivate right intention? Nekama, letting go of what what the mind perceives as me, mine, or myself. Or in other words, letting go of the attitude that this belongs to me, that this is mine, this is myself, or that this is me. Cultivating non-ill will or loving kindness. Cultivating non-cruelty or compassion. When you have right intention, then the mind lets go of craving bit by bit. Let's go of ignorance bit by bit. And then eventually, let's go of it completely. And any new formations that arise or any further formations that arise are pure because they are purified of any kind of ignorance and craving.
when those formations are pure, any intention or inclination that arises always automates towards the Dhamma. There, in that mind, its intentions are automatically right intention. In that mind, its speech and action and effort are spontaneously right speech, right action, right effort. And it always has right mindfulness and is able to get into right collectiveness immediately because there's nothing hindering the mind to go there. Pure intention. And for that reason, it creates no new karma. And when there's no new karma, there is no renewal of being, no more renewed existence. Friend, what is the first jhana? Here, friend, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought, with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. This is called the first jhana. By now, you, by now all of you know this, right? Quite secluded from sensual pleasures, right? Closing your eyes, centering the mind, making it steady, relaxing. Secluded from unwholesome states, six aring any kind of hindrance that arises. One enters upon and abides the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought, bringing up an object and staying with it, with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. When the mind is free of hindrances, it feels relief, and from that relief there is joy and happiness. Friend, how many factors does the first jhana have? Friend, the first jhana has five factors. Here, when the bhikkhu has entered upon the first jhana, there occur applied thought, sustained thought, rapture, pleasure, and unification of mind. That is how the, fir the first jhana has five factors. What is unification of mind? Chitta ekagata. Ekagata is usually translated as one-pointed. In chitta here is mind. But ekagata is really about the mind being collected, the attention being non-dispersed. In other words, when we use that analogy of the satellite orbiting around the planet, the gravitational field is collected around the earth. And the satellite just follows that pattern, the gravitational field. The attention remains undispersed. The attention remains unified. The attention remains steady. But it doesn't become one-pointed. The satellite doesn't become the Earth. Right? One-pointed would mean the mind makes a lot of effort and just goes into that one object. As soon as you do that, what happens? You lose the picture of what is around you. Right? You take your finger and you look all the way at the finger and you're not seeing anything but the finger, but there's all this stuff around. As soon as your mind is resting in a unified awareness, 
that is collected and the attention is undispersed or non-dispersed, then it's able to see at any point a hindrance arises. The seeing of a hindrance arises, uh, arising is also insight, is also part of vipassana. So unification of mind is actually related to samatha, to serenity, to tranquility, to being collected. But in order for that, in, in order for the vipassana to arise, in order for the insight to arise of what is arising, there needs to be proper attention that is through the unification of mind. If the mind became one-pointed, then there is no space for the mind to be aware of what's around. But if the mind is open, there's enough space for the mind to have insight or clarity or vipassana into what is arising, even if that's a hindrance and being able to then let that go. And if that's an enlightenment factor or anything that might arise in the mind. Friend, how many factors are abandoned in the first jhana and how many factors are possessed? Friend, in the first jhana, five factors are abandoned and five factors are possessed. Here, when a bhikkhu has entered upon the first jhana, sensual desire is abandoned, ill will is abandoned, sloth and torpor is abandoned or are abandoned, restlessness and remorse are abandoned, and doubt is abandoned. And there occur applied thought, sustained thought, rapture, pleasure, and unification of mind. That is how in the first five jhana, I'm sorry, the first jhana, five factors are abandoned, the five hindrances are abandoned, and five factors are possessed, the five factors of the first jhana. Friend, these five faculties each have a separate field, a separate domain, and do not experience each other's field and domain. That is the eye faculty, the ear faculty, the nose faculty, the tongue faculty, and the body faculty. Now, of these five faculties, each having a separate field, a separate domain, not experiencing each other's field and domain, what is their resort? What experiences their fields and domains? Now, this is very interesting. So, what he's saying is, he's coming under the assumption that the eye can only see, the ear can only hear, the nose can only smell, the tongue can only taste, the body can only feel or touch. Right? But the eye cannot listen to a sound. The ear cannot see a color. The nose can't smell a sight, and so on and so forth. However, we do have something called synesthesia. Right? But even if you have something called synesthesia, you're still experiencing it through one of those five faculties. Even if you say, Right? This paper looks spicy. Right? 
or this sound sounds red, right? Even if you say that, you're still experiencing it through any of these faculties. The interpretation is different because of synesthesia. And that is dependent upon the mind and how it's taking it in. And that's where the, the answer is. So he's asking, what does it resort to? Right? What, what is their resort? What experiences these sense bases? Friends, these five faculties each have a separate field, a separate domain, and do not experience each other's field and domain. That is the eye faculty, the ear faculty, the nose faculty, the tongue faculty, and the body faculty. Now, these five faculties, each having a separate field, a separate domain, not experiencing each other's field and domain, have mind as their resort. Mind experiences their fields and domains. Mind is chief. Mind is the forerunner of all states. Friend, as to these five faculties, that is the eye faculty, the ear faculty, the nose faculty, the tongue faculty, and the body faculty, what do these five faculties stand in dependence upon? What are they dependent upon? Friend, as to these five faculties, that is the eye faculty, the ear faculty, the nose faculty, the tongue faculty, and the body faculty, these five faculties stand in dependence upon or dependent upon vitality. What is vitality? We'll come to that soon. Friend, what does vitality stand in dependence on? What is vitality dependent on? Vitality stands in dependence on heat. So what is vitality? Vitality comes from the word Jivat Indriya, the life faculty. And what is the heat? That is uh, Tejo or also uh, Ushna. Ushna. So I would say you could think about the life faculty as basically the electrical activity that runs throughout the nervous system that allows the functionality of these five faculties to run. But for the nervous system to work properly, you need proper cellular metabolism. And so you could say that heat is metabolism. So you have the electrical activity of the nervous system as vitality, and you have metabolism as the function of heat in the body. So then he asks, okay, what does vitality stand in dependence upon? He says vitality stands in dependence on heat. And what does heat stand in dependence on? Heat stands on in dependence on vitality. <laughs> Friend, just now we understood the Venerable Sariputta to have said vitality stands in dependence on heat and now we understand him to say heat stands in dependence on vitality. 
how should the meaning of these statements be regarded? In that case, friend, I shall give you a simile. For some wise men here understand the meaning of a statement by means of a simile. Just as when an oil lamp is burning, if you've ever seen an oil lamp burning, right, you see the flame, its radiance, you can see like some radiance shining if you look carefully. And you can actually see different colors around in that radiance. Is seen in dependence on the flame itself. In order for you to see that radiance, you need a flame. And its radiance, or I should say its flame, is seen in dependence on its radiance. You can't see the flame without the radiance around it. That's allowing you to see the flame. So too, vitality stands in dependence on heat. And heat stands in dependence on vitality. So the life faculty is dependent upon heat. And heat, in order for it to actually be present, requires the life faculty. Friend, are vital formations things that can be felt? Or are vital formations one thing and things that can be felt another. Vital formations, friends, that is Ayusankaras, are not things that can be felt. If Ayusankaras or vital formations were things that can be felt, then a bhikkhu who has entered upon the cessation of perception and feeling would not be seen to emerge from it. Very interesting. Because vital formations are one thing and things that can be felt another, a bhikkhu who has entered upon the cessation of perception and feeling and consciousness can be seen to emerge from it. So what are vital formations? Ayusankaras. That determine the longevity of the body. That have to do with whatever is happening in the body in terms of its functionality. Related to heat and vitality related to metabolism in the body, related to digestion, related to telomere activity, related to all kinds of things that the body, you, the mind itself cannot directly perceive. Right? Sometimes you can perceive the process of digestion through hunger, that the body is hungry because you feel it or, and, and all of these other things. However, the mind isn't able to perceive what's going on at the cellular level unless it looks really closely. And so those functions happen at one level and the functions of seeing things or experiencing things through the sense faculties happen through another. The vital formations give rise to the functioning of organs and all kinds of cells and the nervous system in one way or the other. And the mental formations give the functioning of what the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, and the body, and the mind itself can feel and perceive. So these are two different things. So in cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness, what ceases are the three formations, the three types of formations. The bodily formations that have to do with inhalation and exhalation, and other functions of the body like movement and things like that. 
the verbal formations that have to do with thinking and expressing in speech and the mental formations that allow you to feel and perceive through the sixth sense bases. These cease, but while they're ceased in cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness, the vital formations continue. Right? That's why you put somebody under, you know, an MRI or all of these different sensors while they're in cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness they will still trace some kind of bodily functions going on in terms of skin conductivity and some kind of heart rate and some kind of blood pressure and so on and so forth. But in terms of what's happening in the mind, in terms of feeling and perception, in terms of expression of speech, in terms of moving around, that all ceases in cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness. To the extent that even when you're asleep, even when you are sitting in meditation, even when you think you're still, the eyes move around just a little bit. But in cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness, the eyes are absolutely still. Everything is absolutely still in that sense. You had a question? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's where it gets a little hazy because when we talk about breathing as a function, that's being done through basically the nervous system related to vital formations. But here we say bodily, bodily formations have to do with the inhalation and exhalation, possibly due to intentionally inhaling and in intentionally exhaling. In other words, controlling the breath. That could be seen in one way. Yes, that's right. So, that's what I'm saying. It's reflection first. That's the vichara. Reflection. reflection. So, in other words, vittaka and vichara, bringing up the object of meditation and then reflecting upon it is the vittaka and vichara. In this case, the vittaka and vichara is thinking about something, reflecting about it, and making the intention to speak or the, making the intention to express it in some way. Yeah, yeah. Or you could say the speech is a result of the vitaka vichara. Yeah. It's saying applied and sustained thought in here. Yeah, but you can also have um, thinking and examining thought. I don't know which version I have. It looks a little old, but anyway. Friend, what, when this body is bereft, of how many states is it then discarded and forsaken, left lying senseless like a log? Friend, when this body is bereft of three states, vitality, heat, and consciousness, it is then discarded and forsaken, left lying senseless like a log. In other words, a corpse. 
Friend, what is the difference between one who is dead and who has, who has completed his time and a bhikkhu who has entered upon the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness? This question was asked earlier. Friend, in the case of one who is dead, who has completed his time, his bodily formations have ceased and subsided. His verbal formations have ceased and subsided. His mental formations have ceased and subsided. His vitality is exhausted. His heat has been dissipated. That's why when you look at a corpse, it's very interesting. Sometimes when you see a corpse, there's still a little bit of electrical activity. So sometimes it looks like the corpse is moving, right? But it's still not alive. And, but when you feel the corpse, even after some time, after a few minutes, you start to feel the heat leaving, right? The warmth of the corpse is gone, or the body is gone, we should say. And his faculties are fully broken up. In other words, now there is no connection made in terms of the mind, because the mind has gone from there. And this five physical sense bases. There's a disconnection now, so they're broken up. There's no functionality going on at all. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. They are the life faculty. Yes. But here, when you talk about Ayu, here you're talking about longevity or life itself, right? There's no more life expression going on here, no more life energy going on. Yes, yes. And of course, Ushna being heat. Yeah. In the case of a bhikkhu who has entered upon the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness, his bodily formations have ceased and subsided, his verbal formations have ceased and subsided, his mental formations have ceased and subsided, but his vitality is not exhausted, meaning He's still alive. His heat has not been dissipated, which means that there is still some kind of met metabolic activity going on. And his faculties become exceptionally clear. This is what I was talking about earlier, right? When you are in cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness, there is no sensory impingement on the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body. All of the signals are completely clear because they're cleared of any kind of, you know, or I should say the reception is completely uh, clear. There's no traffic jam going on, right? The road is completely clear. Not even one iota of sensory impact going on in any of these five physical sense bases. So they're exceptionally clear, but they're still connected to mind. It's just that there's nothing going on through that connection. So why did Kotika go from the first jhana to the Nirodha Samabhati without going to the second, third, or anything? I mean,
me make sure that that's how we have it. <laughs> Yeah, because if you see the first jhana, really he's talking about how do you start to get into jhana. And then everything else after that is a natural progression. The second, the third, the fourth. They just, it's like uh, using that same simile of the water going down from the mountain, streaming down to the gullies and so on. Once you're in the first jhana, your mind will naturally progress to the second jhana. Once it lets go of any thinking and examining thought because now it has self-confidence in it. Once it's in the second jhana, after a while, just because of the fact that the co contents or conditions of that second jhana are impermanent, the joy fades away. And then you're naturally in the third jhana and then naturally in the fourth jhana once the sukha fades away. And of course, he did talk about the ayatanas earlier in terms of the mind consciousness. But again, cessation of perception, feeling and consciousness can be experienced from the first jhana onwards. It doesn't have to happen all the way through the first eight and then cessation, but it can happen from the first jhana onwards. So that cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness is never nibbana. Right. But it is what allows for the experience in nibbana to occur, let's say. Both. It can be both in one way and it can be one in the other way. So there can be only one cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. Right. Kanesha, are cessation and nibbana conjoined? Your line of question has gone too far. Yes. <laughs> That's from another sutta, but I'll get to that later. Yeah. So the, you know, there's, there's no sensory input in cessation. It's like the road, there's no cars. Yeah. It's totally empty, but the road is still there. That's right, exactly. The road's gone. That's right. Good way, good way of putting it. Okay, that, that shows you that cessation is not nothing. It's just that there's nothing happening. No conditions present, that's all. Because there's no contact happening. When you have contact, that is a sensory impingement from the light hitting the eyes, that's not happening in cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. No sound waves are being received, made contact with the ear, and there's no registration of that happening. So there's no sensory impingement. They're not being felt and perceived by the mind. That's right. So, yes, and the connection between the five faculties and the mind is exceptionally clear. Right? There's no data going in, there's no sensory data there, so it's completely wiped out. It's almost disconnecting the sensor from the mind. Yeah, yeah. Is it what? You're saying completely what removed? Removed, yeah. So like I have five sensors, my ear, mouth, and I disconnect from the mind. 
or the mind disconnects from them. From the yeah. Yes, that's the problem. Yeah. The mind yeah. disconnects from this five Yes. It's disconnected completely. But what is still there is the, the, the vitality and heat, which allows them to be functional or potentially functional. If the, vi uh, the vitality and heat were not present and the mind is disconnected, which in the case of death, then there is no possibility of them re-arising again. Yes, yes, it can. Yes. So, like anywhere in the body? Well, it's very diminished, let's say. Yeah. But it should be, generally. Yeah. So, is it both in Nirvana and cessation, cessation that when you come back online, there's the experience of very clear vision? Very clear hearing, um, very clear smell. Right. Is it fair to say because of that disconnection, we've got yeah. the word, um, that you actually rest the mind, so it becomes sharper? That's right. It has, had a, it has complete rest. Absolutely. No traffic at all. No traffic at all. So that's why when you come out, your faculties being exceptionally clear, you have this the greens are much greener, the blues are much bluer, and the sounds are much more potent, and so on. So. What is the awareness you have? You are awareness. You don't know you are not aware, right? In what? Cessation? Yeah. Yeah, you're not aware. But you're aware after cessation. After the after. Yeah. What would be the length of this cessation? It could be for a moment. But uh, it has been timed. I'll explain that there have been people who've experienced cessation by listening to some meditation, which at some point David will probably play. And in listening to that, they said, my mind went away. I was listening to this word and my mind went away. And then it came back on and it was saying something else. And so they went back to remember what was that in the meditation. And they said it was at this point, like something happened. I don't know, like I just heard that last word. And it was at this point I heard this word. And that measurement was a minute and 20 seconds. So it could, it could vary from a few seconds to even up to a minute. Up to a minute or two minutes. So the, what's the difference between cessation and sloth and torpor? In one case, you're very radiant and bright, and in another case, you're very dense and heavy. Why is it then called samapati if it is just one second? So that's different. There is nirodha and there's nirodha samapati. So nirodha is the experience that somebody has when they go through this process and then they come out and experience Nibbana. 
Nirodha Samapati is somebody who can intentionally go into Nirodha. Samapati means the attainment the, or the accomplishment, the, the achievement. You've unlocked the achievement in the game of life to be able to go into Nirodha. Up to seven days. Anywhere from a couple of seconds up to seven days. With, well, with the cessation of consciousness, there is the cessation of nama rupa. So the functionalities of any kind of contact, feeling, perception, intention, and attention also cease. And the six sense bases also cease. Absolutely. With that whole one cessation, there's a whole cessation of the rest of the links. All right, I'm almost done, guys. <laughs> so once I finish, we can ask the questions here. This is the difference between one who is dead, who has completed his time, and a bhikkhu who has entered upon the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. Just to recap, what is the difference? In death, there is no vitality, there is no heat, and the sense faculties or the five faculties are broken up. There's no more connection. Oh, there's a turtle there. He's come to listen. By the time this talk is over, he'll be late. It's like, what happened? <laughs> so, so coming back again. So... There, the sense faculties are broken up, and the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. There is still heat, there is still vitality, and the sense faculties are exceptionally clear. The connection between the mind and the sense faculties have been disconnected in the sense that the mind ceases, but the heat and vitality continue to let them be potentially functional. No impingement going on. Friend, how many conditions are there for the attainment of the neither painful nor pleasant deliverance of mind? Friend, there are four conditions for the attainment of the neither painful nor pleasant deliverance of mind. What does that mean? Fourth jhana. Here, with the abandoning of ple pleasure and pain, and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure, and purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. These are the four conditions for the attainment of the neither painful nor pleasant deliverance of mind. Friend, how many conditions are there for the attainment of the signless deliverance of mind? 
Friend, there are two conditions for the attainment of the signless deliverance of mind. Non-attention to all signs, and listen, and attention to the signless element. These are the two conditions for the attainment of the signless deliverance of mind. Non-attention to all signs. No object being taken anywhere. And attention to the signless element. What does that mean? The signless element. Mind itself. Friend, how many conditions are there for the persistence of the signless deliverance of mind? Friend, there are three conditions for the persistence of the signless deliverance of mind. Non-attention to all signs, attention to the signless element, and the prior determination of its duration. In other words, this is also an attainment. The same way Nirodha Samapati allows you to be in... Um, cessation for up to seven days, you can be in the signless collectedness of mind for up to seven days. You can be in neither perception nor non-perception for up to seven days. And so, for, so, so on and so forth for each of the jhanas and ayatanas. You can be in e any of the jhanas for up to seven days, according to the suttas. Friend, how many conditions are there for emergence from the signless deliverance of mind? Friend, there are two conditions for emergence from the signless deliverance of mind. What do you think it is? Attention to all signs and non-attention to the signless element. In other words, mind no longer looks at itself and takes something else as an object. These are the two conditions for emergence from the signless deliverance of mind. Friend, the immeasurable deliverance of mind, the deliverance of mind through nothingness, the deliverance of mind through voidness, and the signless deliverance of mind. Are these states different in meaning and different in name? Or are they one in meaning and different only in name? Friend, the immeasurable deliverance of mind, the deliverance of mind through nothingness, the deliverance of mind through voidness, and the signless deliverance of mind. There is a way in which these states are different in meaning and different in name, and there is a way in which they are one in meaning and different in name. So in other words, these different deliverances that we talk about there is a way in which they point to the same experience and there is a way in which they point out to different experiences. What, friend, is the way in which these states are different in meaning and different in name? In what way are these states differentiated? Because they point out to different, specifically different experiences. Here, a bhikkhu abides pervading one quarter with the mind imbued with loving-kindness, 
likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above, below, around, and everywhere, and to all as to himself. He abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. Likewise, he abides pervading one quarter with the mind imbued with compassion or with empathetic joy, altruistic joy or with equanimity. Likewise, the second, likewise, the third, likewise, the fourth, so above, below, around and everywhere and to all as to himself, he abides pervading the all encompassing world with a mind imbued with uh, compassion, empathetic joy and equanimity, or equanimity, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill will. This is called the immeasurable deliverance of mind. Does this sound familiar to you guys? The six directions. And you send it out in each direction, and in all directions at the same time, you are experiencing the immeasurable deliverance of mind. That's what you're doing. And what friend is the deliverance of mind through nothingness? Here, with the complete surmounting of the base of infinite consciousness, aware that there is nothing, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the base of nothingness. This is called the deliverance of mind through nothingness. So being in the base of nothingness is also the deliverance of mind through nothingness. And what, friend, is the deliverance of mind through voidness or emptiness? Sunyata. Here, a bhikkhu gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut reflects thus. This is empty or void of a self or of what belongs to a self. So, in other words, you reflect on different conditions. The six sense bases, the six sense base objects, the five aggregates and so on. This is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself. You contemplate in this way. And this is called the deliverance of mind through voidness. When you do this, when you see that this is void of any kind of self in any of these conditioned experiences, actually that state of mind is basically going into nothingness because you're, you're basically going into total equanimity when you do that. And tied to that is the experience of the base of nothingness. And what, friend, is the signless deliverance of mind? Here, with non-attention to all signs, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the signless concentration of mind. That's what we were talking about earlier. This is called the signless deliverance of mind. So anytime you go into the signless collectedness of mind, you have signless deliverance of mind. This is the way in which these states are different in meaning and different in name. And what friend is the way in which these states are one in meaning and different only in name? Listen carefully. Lust is a maker of measurement. Hate is a maker of measurement. Delusion is is a maker of measurement. 
In a bhikkhu whose taints are destroyed, these are abandoned, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with so that they are no longer subject to future arising. Of all the kinds of immeasurable deliverance of mind, the unshakable deliverance of mind is pronounced the best. Now that unshakable deliverance of mind is void or empty of lust, void or empty of hate, void or empty of delusion. And so in this way, the immeasurable uh, deliverance of mind is talking about the mind of somebody fully liberated from the taints and the roots, from greed, hatred, and delusion. Because lust is a maker of measurement, hate is a maker of measurement, delusion is a maker of measurement. Why? Because it results in mana, in conceit. Mana also means to compare and to measure something. When that is gone, then that mind is fully liberated, fully delivered, and is experiencing the immeasurable deliverance of mind because there is no more measuring going on. Lust is a something. Hate is a something. Delusion is a something. In a bhikkhu whose taints are destroyed, these are abandoned, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with so that they are no longer subject to future arising. Of all the kinds of deliverance of mind through nothingness, the unshakable deliverance of mind is pronounced the best. Now that unshakable deliverance of mind is void or empty of lust, void or empty of hate, void or empty of delusion. Hate is a something. It's a quality of the mind. Hate, hate, delusion, greed, hatred, and delusion. Lust is a quality of the mind. Hate is a quality of the mind. Delusion is a quality of the mind. It's present as something to be experienced in the mind. But when these three are destroyed, uprooted, and the taints are destroyed, then that mind experiences nothing in the form of greed, hatred, and delusion. And therefore, it's experiencing the ultimate deliverance of mind through nothingness. Lust is a maker of signs. Hate is a maker of signs. Delusion is a maker of signs. In a bhikkhu whose taints are destroyed, these are abandoned, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump done away with so that they are no longer subject to future arising. Of all the kinds of signless deliverance of mind, the unshakable deliverance of mind is pronounced the best. Now that unshakable deliverance of mind is void of lust, void of hate, void of delusion. This is the way in which these states are one in meaning and different only in name. So lust is a maker of signs, hate is a maker of signs, and delusion is a maker of signs. In what way? When there is greed, there is also an object of greed. When there is hatred, there is also an object of hatred. 
when there is a delusion when there is delusion there is also an object of delusion as soon as greed hatred and delusion are gone all objects are seen for what they actually are not me not mine not myself and so the ultimate signless deliverance of mind is basically the mind of one who is fully liberated and they are also void in, in the sense that it is empty of any greed, hatred, and delusion. So these deliverances of mind are really pointing out to that mind of an arahat, one who has done what had to be done. Yes. Akupa Chetavimuti, unshakable deliverance of mind. That is what the Venerable Sariputta said. The Venerable Maha Kotita was satisfied and delighted in the Venerable Sariputta's words. Now, does anybody have any questions? Yes. Yes, but they can still be in the second jhana and still experience listening. They might not be able to fully understand or comprehend what's going on. But actually, if you think about it, uh, in the Abhasara uh, Loka, so the first jhana is the Brahma Loka, and the second jhana is the Abhasara Loka. There, there are some beings, category of beings, who have some level of Vitaka in Vichara, but very minute, very faint. If you go into the book of cosmology or go into seeing the different beings one of them you'll see is they actually have some level of it it's very faint however yeah uh, on the topic of beings um and like in the brahma locus it says that they're in the category of material beings but yeah would, i mean from our perspective, wouldn't they seem immaterial and like non in the sense of being non-physical? No, they are still physical. They still have some kind of luminous form. That's how it's understood. Like a force ghost. <laughs> I know you would understand what that means. <laughs> I haven't come across anyone doing that, or the idea that it might be the arising um, of a superhuman state. But that doesn't mean that it's not possible. LSD. There you go. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. Well, anesthesia would mean no sense, sensing at all. Now, that's another question. What is the difference between one who is in cessation and one who is in anesthesia, under the influence of anesthesia? They develop their mind to that versus being 
That's right. There you go. That's basically it. <laughs> so he said, so the question is, what is the difference between one under the influence of anesthesia and one who is in cessation? In the case of one who is in cessation, it was prior, it's developed prior, meaning somebody makes the intention and goes under an, a cessation through the process of development. And the other, which is anesthesia, is basically, it's injected into you. Yeah, you can. You can go into the fourth jhana and somebody can do surgery on you. That's right. Each jhana is a cessation. So, but the fourth jhana is pretty good because you have less bodily contact. Now, the best would be just to go under cessation and you can just do a full surgery or whatever you need to do. Yeah. About the cessation and, and nibbana being conjoined. Conjoined, yeah. Specifically, I was referring to the intentional attainment of cessation and then the nibbana. Uh, are, are, are those two be considered conjoined? So the question is is cessation and nibbana conjoined? Or are they conjoined? And. Conjoined to Nibbana. The intention, so is Nirodha and Nibbana conjoined, and is Nirodha Samapati and Nibbana conjoined? When you use the word conjoined, what do you mean? I mean, well, uh, okay, so that's another way it is, uh, like, is it inevitable? Is it inevitable? that one who experiences the intentional attainment of cessation inevitably going to experience uh, nibbana on the other side? No, not necessarily. Because there are those who can go through the attainment of Nirodha Samapati, which is intentionally going into cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness and still not experience Nibbana. Okay. I just want to ask with one other way then. Prior to Arahant or Anagami, I guess, so prior to that uh, state that you just described, uh, would they then be practically inevitable? First of all, the understanding is anyone who can attain the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness by will or intentionally going into it is probably more than a Sakadagami. In fact, the Sutta say it's basically available to the last two paths. Yeah, your question was... Because they're lacking wisdom, you said. Oh, yeah. Is that why the, that cessation, cessation alone is not Nibbana? Because coming out of cessation and then reflecting 
Yes. And they, they no longer should arise. Yes. That is That's right. In that moment, in that moment of touching nibbana, there is no greed, hatred, and delusion there present at all. But in the case of someone who is an anangami who comes out of cessation, let's say intentional cessation, cessation, there's still the conceit that arises that I am coming out. I'm not aware of anyone like that. Okay. Are you? No. Okay. <laughs> Good, just checking. <laughs> the question is, are you aware of anyone who does not follow, right? Who does not follow Sila, Samadhi, and Panya, who can intentionally get into cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness? And as far as I'm aware, I don't know anyone. So the question is, does he? But no. no. Okay. So that means, in other words, you may be aware of those people who. <laughs> <laughs> but they have developed their sila, samadhi, and panya. To ask differently, maybe a difference, maybe not the Buddhist sila. Right, right. Probably you are not. You go to know someone. Buddhist sila. Sila is not Buddhist, that's the thing. If you think about it, when we talk about sila, right, the five precepts, the universal. We're just making sure what the light side of the force and the dark side of the force. Right. And then they can't interfere. No, no. Then you have gray Jedi. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's it's an important point that there is only one morality, and this is a moral or not moral world. There's not different kinds of morality. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to take a few more questions because then I'm going to read through this, but go ahead. I yeah. was just curious about the seven days. What about them? I mean, how did someone do a determination to eight and they realized that seven's a limit? Well, that's what I was going to say. We should figure it out, see if we can go yeah, beyond seven. I was a little dubious when you said it. You said, in the suttas it says. <laughs> Yeah, they're they're working on that. They're working on that. <laughs> the ethics committee has to approve on it first. <laughs> yeah, not yet. <laughs> there you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. There is total cessation after that, like complete cessation, like irreversible cessation. Yeah.
are you able to tell, oh, this tension is Pala, um, and I'm going to let go? Yes. Yes. Because, for example, you now we've talked about dependent origination and you've understood some levels of dependent origination that craving is manifested as, a, manifested as tightness and tension when you say, I like this, I don't like this, I am this. Or clinging is manifested as the rationale of why you don't. So you watch what's going on in your mind. You're saying, I don't like this because of so-and-so. And you're trying to make reasons for why it is. That's the clinging. And then there's the idea of, therefore, I am going to do this, is the bhava. So you look at, at which level of that statement the mind is steeped into, or variations of that statement the mind is steeped into, and you can let go. Got it. So you have a pattern. This pattern is dependent origination. And at any given moment, you apply that pattern to your mind and see at which stage this fits. Right. Right, or even at the very moment of the intention of doing something, you know that that's getting into or heading towards birth of action. That's another way of looking at it. Got it. So isn't it sort of like you're sort of interpreting your mind in this framework, but it could be something else because it doesn't necessarily have to be these particular steps. That's right. Yeah. It brings it up again. It's like a feedback. That's right. Yeah, but then you can see the the feeling, the, the perception tied to the feeling, and you can see the intention that brought up the feeling of the image. Where is that intention rooted in? Craving. No. Where is that intention in? Nama Rupa. Okay, so much further back. Yeah. So you don't need all the pieces. When you say all the pieces, what are you referring to? I don't see clinging in Yeah, exactly. But you're able to see prior to that, and you're able to just let go of those. Okay. I'm right? trying to fit everything into my Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Oh, you may not intentionally in the jhana. Yeah, this it's happening to the mind, but it seems like it's stuck in the jhana for a long period. But for days, you meaning meaning just not even sleeping? Uh, no, sleeping. Sleeping, but whenever awake, the mind is in. Okay, yeah. So that mind has a tendency to be in that jhana, like the first jhana or the second jhana whenever it goes into meditation. All the time. Like when you were talking about the seven days, Yeah, when I was referring to the seven days, though, just to be clear, when I was referring to the seven days, it was the intentional going into the first jhana through the eighth jhana up to seven days without sleeping. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But do you still want me to answer that part of the yeah. question? Okay. <laughs> so... If somebody's stuck in a certain jhana, it could be that the mind has basically become attached to one or more factors of that particular jhana. 
and that mind has to look into where that attachment lies and start to let go of it. It happens. Some people, because they're, they become very attached to a certain factor of the jhana, like joy or equanimity or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. But it can happen that it, it lasts for a little while, it lingers. But then, like all things that are conditioned, being impermanent, they'll fade away eventually. They don't get like completely permanently stuck. No. no. Yeah. 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 Obsessed, you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is. Uh, I just want to read this to kind of clarify some things that are possible when you do meditation, essentially, when you do this practice, because uh, now I'm referring to last night's tribute to Bante which does not mean that I'm opening up questions about last night. It only means I'm trying to clarify some things that were spoken about. Is this the one? I want to see if there's a, another version of it. And this one? Yeah. Is this uh, Angurta Nikaya? Oh yeah, here we go. Is this it? So this is actually, it depends on the the numbering system, because here it says Anguttara Nikaya 3.103, but here in the Anguttara Nikaya, which is the Bhikkhubodhi version, it's Anguttara Nikaya Book of Threes 102, and it basically says, Bhikkhus, when a Bhikkhu is devoted to the higher mind, in other words, when it goes into Samadhi, from time to time, he should give attention to three themes or three marks. From time to time, he should give attention to the mark of collectedness. From time to time, he should uh, give attention to the mark of effort. And from time to time, to the mark of equanimity. So these three things, that is collectedness, energy or effort, and equanimity. 
if a bhikkhu devoted to the higher mind attends exclusively to the mark of collectedness, it is possible that his mind will veer towards laziness. If you try too hard, become too concentrated, it's interesting. You may experience sloth and torpor, but you can also experience restlessness. If he attends exclusively, well, here you go. If he attends exclusively to the mark of exertion, it is possible that his mind will veer towards restlessness. If he attends exclusively to the mark of equanimity, it is possible that his mind will not be properly collected for the destruction of the taints. But when a bhikkhu devoted to the higher mind from time to time gives attention to the mark of collectedness, to the mark of effort or energy or exertion, and to the mark of equanimity, his mind becomes malleable wieldy and luminous, pliant and properly collected for the destruction of the taint. So you need these three things, effort, or first you need collectedness, a mind whose attention doesn't scatter from one place to the next and is collected, who has right effort, the right balance of energy using right effort or the six R's, and equanimity, doesn't get affected by one thing or the other, just remains tranquil, calm, and serene. Then his mind becomes malleable, wieldy, luminous. Your mind, you can direct your mind to what you want. It becomes malleable, it becomes luminous, it becomes radiant, it becomes clear, pliant and properly collected for the destruction of the teens. In other words, if you have all of those factors present, the mind can incline towards letting go of all greed, hatred, and delusion, and the taints of sensual desire, being, and ignorance. Suppose bhikkhus, a goldsmith or his apprentice, would prepare a furnace, heat up the crucible, take some gold with tongs, and put it into the crucible. Then, from time to time, he would blow on it, from time to time, sprinkle water over it, and from time to time, just look on. If the goldsmith or his apprentice were to exclusively blow on the gold, it is possible that the gold would just burn up. If he were to exclusively sprinkle water on the gold, it is possible the gold would cool down. If he were to exclusively to just look on, it is possible for the gold that the gold would not reach the right consistency. So you need these three factors. But if the goldsmith or his apprentice from time to time blows on it, from time to time uh, sprinkles water over it, and from time to time just looks on, the gold would become malleable, wieldy, and luminous, pliant, and properly fit for work. When Then whatever kind of ornament the goldsmith wishes to make from it whether a bracelet, earrings, a necklace, or a golden garland, he can achieve his purpose. So too, when a bhikkhu is devoted to the higher mind, from time to time he should give attention to three marks. From time to time he should give attention to the mark of collectedness, from time to time to the mark of right effort or exertion, and from time to time to the mark of equanimity. 
When this happens, what happens? The mind inclines towards the fourth jhana because it has collectedness, it has right effort, and it has equanimity. If a bhikkhu devoted to the higher mind attends exclusively, again, to the mark of collectedness, it is possible that his mind will veer towards laziness. If he attends exclusively to the mark of exertion, it is possible that his mind will veer towards restlessness. If he attends exclusively to the mark of equanimity, it is possible that his mind will not be properly collected for the destruction of the taints. But when from time to time he gives attention to the mark of collectedness, to the mark of exertion, and to the mark of equanimity, his mind becomes malleable, wieldy, and luminous, not br brittle, but properly collected for the destruction of the taints. Then, there being a suitable basis, he is capable of realizing any state realizable by direct knowledge towards which he, he might incline his mind. In other words, now you have, you have the fourth jhana, where there is absolute pristine collectedness and equanimity, balance of energy. Now you are in the fourth jhana. This becomes a suitable base from which you can incline your mind towards something. Usually what happens is, yeah, you already have a question. Yes. yes. Well, it's implied. How do you get collectedness and equanimity? You need mindfulness. From mindfulness, this discernment of states and so on and so forth. So are these the most important of the same? Here the Buddha is saying when you talk about the fourth jhana, the main qualities of that mind are that there's balanced energy, there's good collectedness, and there's deep equanimity for the fourth jhana. Okay. So the fourth jhana becomes a suitable, the, a suitable base. Now for everyone who's attained the fourth jhana, it is from the fourth jhana that you attain to the base of infinite space, to the base of infinite consciousness, to the base of nothingness, or to the base of neither perception nor non-perception. This is a certain inclination that you can do from the fourth jhana. But there are other things that are possible through the cultivation of the fourth jhana. And this is what they are. If I can find it. Oh yeah, here we go. If he wishes, may I wield the various kinds of psychic potency. Having been one, may I become many. Having been many, may I become one. This is what Bhante wanted me to do. Two places at the same time. Still working on it. Yeah, I know, he's watching. Yeah. May I appear and vanish. May I go unhindered through a wall, through a rampart, through a mountain, as though through space. May I dive in and out of the earth as though it were water. Now this has happened with someone and it freaked Bhante out because that person would come in and out of earth and one time just showed up at Bhante's place. And Bhante said, don't do that ever again.
May I walk on water without sinking as though it were earth, seated cross-legged. May I travel in space like a bird. With my hand may I touch and stroke the moon and sun so powerful and mighty. May I exercise mastery with the body as far as the Brahma world. He is capable of realizing it, there being a suitable basis. That suitable basis is the fourth jhana. So if you want to cultivate psychic faculties, for those of you who are curious about this kind of stuff, and I'm not going to take questions after this, I'm just giving you the information. If you want to know how to do these things, cultivate and master the fourth jhana. Once you master the fourth jhana, if you've truly mastered it, then we'll talk. If he wishes, may I, with the divine ear element, which is purified and surpasses the human, hear both kinds of sounds, divine and human, those that are, are far as well as near. He is capable of realizing it, there being a suitable basis. If he wishes, may I understand the minds of other beings and persons, having encompassed them with my own mind. May I understand a mind with lust as a mind with lust, and a mind without lust as a mind without lust, a mind with hatred as a mind with hatred, and a mind without hatred as a mind without hatred, a mind with delusion as a mind with delusion, and a mind without delusion as a mind without delusion, a contracted mind as contracted mind, and a distracted mind as distracted an exalted mind as exalted, and an unexalted mind as unexalted, a surpassable mind as surpassable, and an unsurpassable mind as unsurpassable, a collected mind as collected, and an uncollected mind as uncollected, a liberated mind as liberated, and an unliberated mind as unliberated. He is capable of realizing it, there being a suitable basis. If he wishes, may I recollect my manifold past abodes, that is, one birth, two births, three births, four births, five births, ten births, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand, many eons of world dissolution, many eons of world evolution, many eons of world dissolution and world evolution, thus. There I was so named of such a clan with such an appearance, such was my food, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such my lifespan, passing away from there I was reborn somewhere else, and there too I was so named of such a clan with such an appearance, such was my food, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such my lifespan, passing away from there I was reborn here. May I, may I thus recollect my manifold past abodes with their aspects and details. He is capable of realizing it, there being a suitable basis. Now this is for somebody who wants to go through their past lives, their own past lives. You take, so I'm giving you a little bit of what you can do. Not that you have to do this, but when you get into the fourth jhana, once you incline your mind towards the memories of the last previous day and then the day before that, what you ate for lunch, what you ate for breakfast, what were the highlights of that day, and then the day before that, and the day before that, and then it starts to go into the week before that, 
and you start to see karmic highlights of that day, of that week, of that month, and you go through into your adolescence, your childhood, when you were a toddler, when you were an infant, the moment you were born. And that's where a lot of people hit a wall. It's a blank. It's like there's nothing going on there. And the reason is because when you are born, the process of birth is so traumatizing that just as when you go through some kind of trauma, that your mind goes through shock and just creates this iron wall that you don't want to re recall again. That's the same reason. So in order to penetrate that, how do you do it? <laughs> well, you could do forgiveness. You could let go through forgiveness. You could do hypnosis, like Brenda does. But uh, yeah, you could 6R. You could try to 6R, but it's going to take you a long time to 6R that wall. <laughs> but you have to keep letting go. You have to like just trust in the process and you have to keep developing enough collectedness and equanimity to let the mind incline further and further and you have to have the patience to wait and see what happens and then the formations arise to what happened previous to that yes so this is interesting so the one question i have is does this help like when you were talking about that patience and that that kind of Letting go, does that actually help as part of the practice for, for not just for the psychic powers, but for the, <coughs> the kind of development of like less reducing your suffering? That You're saying going through past lives? Yeah. No, I'll explain what is the reason why you want to go to past lives. Oh. I'll explain. First, let me get over this wall. So yeah, you can do forgiveness, you can let go, keep letting go, you just wait, and eventually certain formations will arise for your mind to see into, and it will go through that wall into when, just before you were born, into the womb. And you'll have certain experiences over there, you'll start to see that, and then you'll hit another wall. And that wall is the wall between one death and the next birth. And because that death can be traumatizing, death in general is traumatizing for people who are unprepared, now you have to go through that wall. So what do you do there? Same thing. Do forgiveness. Let go. Wait. See what happens. You might have to wait two hours or three hours, but you have to have the patience to go through it. Once you hit, go through that wall, what do you see? The moment of the death that happened there. You go back, you go back, you go back. And this is how it's done. Okay, now what is the utility of doing this besides just having a good time? Well, you start, huh? Yes, you start to understand karma. You start to understand the mechanics of dependent origination. This led to this, this led to this, this led to this. Through this contact, this feeling was done. Through this feeling, this craving arose, and therefore this bhava arose. And therefore, there was a birth of new action and so on and so forth. So you're threading through many, many, many links of many, many arisings of many, many links of dependent origination. And so you're getting a, another dimension of looking at how dependent origination works. That's the utility of it. Yeah. I, I just, I, what I don't understand. 
it seems like it would be extremely difficult to just to instigate the process of of memory formations in in the fourth jhana. Yeah. yeah. Because while you're there, you're not in the fourth jhana at that point in time. You're now inclining the mind through this process. It's a mental process where you're accessing formations. And your mental formations are still present, still active. So, but, so, okay, so what you just said was when you're doing this, you're not actually in the fourth jhana. You start off with the fourth jhana. Start off with the fourth jhana. So you have developed... Have all of the factors necessary, the letting go of pleasure and pain, uh, the relinquishing of whatever else you said. Yeah. Yeah, so the, that is still the conditions necessary to instigate that. Yes. Yes. In the same way, okay, the way to understand this is in the same way you would say that you are in the fourth jhana and then from the fourth jhana you go into infinite space. In reality, we say infinite space as a separate state, but actually it's within the fourth jhana. But in this case, you're in the fourth jhana and you incline your mind towards these things that are happening. Now, you're just... It's like you're starting the ball. You're just letting the ball roll. And you're watching this process happen. Initially, there is some level of like intention of going there, the same way you would have an intention of going into infinite space by starting to radiate. Eventually, it just radiates on its own, and you start to see infinite space. In the same way, you start the ball rolling by going into the different memories, and then it just starts to rewind automatically. And then there's a certain point I said in the blank where you have to make some level of an effort and you keep doing that. And so this is going through instead of infinite space, essentially infinite time. Can I ask, is this considered one of the reviewing knowledges? Yes, that's what I'm I'm actually talking about. This is the first of the Tevija, the threefold knowledges. If he wishes, may I, with the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, see beings passing away and being born inferior and superior, beautiful and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, and understand how beings fare in accordance with their karma. Thus, these beings who engage in misconduct by body, speech, and mind, who revile the noble ones, held wrong view and undertook karma based on wrong view with the breakup of the body after death have been reborn in planes of misery in a bad destination in the lower world or even in hell but these beings who engage in good conduct by body speech and mind who did not revile the noble ones who held right view and undertook karma based on right view with the breakup of the body after death, having been reborn in a good destination in the heavenly world. Thus, with a divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, may I see beings passing away and being reborn, inferior and superior, beautiful and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, and understand how beings fare in accordance with their karma. He is capable of realizing it, there being a suitable basis. 
So how do you do this? How do you awaken the divine eye? Again, I'm only going to give you general details. But when you do this, again, you're in the fourth jhana. Okay, you stay in the fourth jhana and you incline your mind towards seeing something in a certain direction, whether it's forwards or backwards, above you or below you. And you start to see certain beings, whether it's in this realm or if it's above you in the higher realms, if it's below you in the lower realms. And you start to see how they arise and pass away. And what you're starting to see are different karmic streams. Now, what is the utility of this? Is it just for fun? Also karma. Also karma, of course. Seeing dependent origination. Now you see a different dimensionality to dependent origination. Now you see how dependent origination is universal for all beings. They doing this from that contact gave rise to this feeling. They gave rise to this craving. This resulted in this action. This resulted in this consequence. From there, they went here and so on and so forth. Yeah. another being's life. And so then that's how, by the cultivation of the divine eye, as it's understood. So, so if I say I wanted to go into space and I was able to go into space and I wanted to find out what the whole idea of the karmic thread, the gray alien was, I could. You could. <laughs> Technically, you could. Just curious. Yeah. Report back for us, please. Yeah, please, let us know. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> But you could look into other beings. And then once you, once you cultivate that ability, very interesting what happens is now that you can go back in time and see what happens and their future destination, you can stay here and look at a being and look at the karmic streams of that being. What are the choices that led to that being? And what are the potential choices that lead to a certain destination for that being? So you can actually tell into some level of what's happening in the future. Hold on, there's there's a whole line of questions. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. Yeah. So, at this level, how quickly does, can that happen? It's for, so it's like practice makes perfect, right? right? You have to keep doing it. <laughs> and eventually it becomes like that. You just flip on... This individual... Yeah. Right, exactly. Not only the past, but also to an extent their future. Or when they pass on, see what, where they've gone. Right. Now. You had a question? Uh, yeah, so because it seems like we're talking about such a delicate um, activity, I just wondered how easy it would be to have like an emotional reaction that would... Hence the fourth jhana. Yeah. This is why you use the fourth jhana as a suitable basis. Because yeah. you need that, that equanimity. Yeah. 
when you say being, you mean a being you know now, right? That that's your starting point. You cannot it's not because you go in this space, there are many beings. Right? Oh no, it's any being that you don't even know. Huh? You don't even know that being. Right, exactly. You could still look into them. Okay, but you don't have really it's almost like knowing the like you could be like here's an example. Absolutely. I mean, you could be at the airport, and you know how pe do people do people watching? You could do karma watching. You could just look at this person and be like, "This is what happened here, and this is what happened there." It's for anyone. Yeah, exactly. So this this is how it's done. This is how it's cultivated. That's the reason why. I already told you guys, no questions, but and go the ahead. The point is that it's a person you see that is here now. You don't go there. And no, no, you go there and you do that. But, but this, is, this is before, before Nibbana. This is all before Nibbana. It's not needed for Nibbana, by the way. It's not needed for Nibbana. And you could also say, right, that in hypnosis or under the influence of psychedelics, lots of people have these experiences, but with the fourth jhana mastery, you're able to like... Have equanimity so you don't get flustered. Yeah. They just maybe can't make sense of it. Yeah. They're locked up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one question is that uh, when you see them, are they able to see you? And do you need a specific shield like uh, other people? You don't need a shield. Energies, other things, you don't need to. You, need all, you don't need all that. You have equanimity with you. And you can interact with those beings as well. No. Yes. How do you know when you're ready to do such things, and how do you know to trust yourself? What you're seeing is what you're seeing. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's such a visceral experience. Like, uh, for example, seeing into your past lives. The idea is, how do I know if I'm making this up or if it's actually a past life? How do you trust your own memories? You don't. Yeah. You don't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sure, at times you're wrong, but like, let's say somebody, you said I had salmon for, for lunch, and somebody says, no, 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 you had steak, but you know for a fact you had salmon. How do you know that? Well, you, recall, you recall the taste, right? Exactly. How do you, how do you know the taste? You just know, exactly. It's a sense of like, this is an experience, like you've had the experience and you've, you've seen it, you've, you've felt it. But anyway, you're, you had another yeah, part of the question. How do you know when you're ready if you want to look into your past lives? Well, it's, it's really, it's much more conducive for people who have, you know, Bhante would talk about this. He would say there's logical kind of people who are in their head. And they're emotional people who are in their heart. And so somebody who's more emotional, somebody who's more feeling type is prone to be more psychic. Somebody who's like an empath, for example, somebody who's able to feel what's going on around them, it's very conducive for them to do it. 
It's not like the, lo the logical person can't go into the heart and do it. It's not like they cannot, but it'll be a little bit more difficult for them. So I'm almost done here. Can I finish? <laughs> if he wishes, may I, with the destruction of the taints in this very life, realize for myself with direct knowledge of the taintless liberation of mine, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, may I dwell in it, he is capable of realizing it, there being a suitable basis. So what that means is basically attaining the destruction of the taints, all fetters and taints. Now, how does that happen? The mind goes from the fourth jhana and would incline the mind towards understanding dependent origination again. And starting to see that this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself. Starting to have perfect attention on every process that's going on. And when you see that, when you see the links of dependent origination there, you see it in a completely different way. Or you can see it in a completely different way. That will result in the mind letting go of all attachments to any kind of sensual craving all attachments to any and all desire for being and non-being, and perfect understanding of the Four Noble Truths, and understanding the Four Noble Truths as a context or template for any, solu for any problem or solution for that problem. Right? So this is how it can be done. This is one way to do it. But an, but an easier way is just to do the twin practice the way we're doing in terms of the jhanas go through the first four jhanas or even if you attain cessation from the first jhana onwards and then from there you see the links you let go of any attachment to what you're seeing easier said than done but as you continue to do it the insights grow the ability to see how this process of existence starts to become more clear and eventually, you will do it. It will happen whenever it happens. Yeah. The, the third one that you talked about, it's the most interesting one by far. It seems like a surefire path to Nirvana That's This is how the Buddha did it. Then why are we doing like the... There's a, we well, the all right, here's... Here's the thing. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold <laughs> on. On the night of uh, his awakening, he went through the first four jhanas. He inclined and saw the past lives. Then he saw the arising and passing away of beings. And then he went and inclined the mind towards understanding how this process works and attained arahatship. He did that all in the matter of one night. So that's the question. How, how fast can you do the process of looking into your past lives? Do you have the patience? Do you have the energy? Do you have the dedication that it takes to be able to spend four, six, seven, eight hours 
sitting and doing this. And as we know, he already had familiarity with the, all the genres, essentially. Well, I mean, he had some mastery over nothingness. He had mastery over nothingness and neither perception nor non-perception based on uh, Alara Kalama and Ramaputta's technique. And, of course, he had all the Paramis with him. Right? He had... Right? He had all of that going for him. So the first two knowledges are necessary? No, that's what I was going to get to. The first two knowledges are not necessary for arahatship. Only the third is necessary for arahatship. The destruction of the taints results in arahatship. Seeing through the divine eye, seeing through the many lifetimes, walking through walls, being in two places at the same time, you know, walking on water, all of these, you know, things are not required for the attainment of destruction of the taints. In the suttas, it talks about different kinds of arahats. There are the arahats who have the, the six higher powers, which include the, these three. There are those who are able to have the four analytical knowledges. There are those who have variations of those, you know. I'm, try, I'm still trying to do the math on that one, like how many arhats can you have in terms of the va different variations. I'll get to it one day and I'll tell you. But basically there are arhats with the fourfold knowledge and only the threefold knowledges or the fourfold analytical knowledges and the threefold knowledges, those who have the sixfold as well as the threefold and the fourfold or those who have just the sixfold and the fourfold and those who just have the threefold and the sixfold, you know, basically different variations of that. But all of them have one thing in common the destruction of the taints. And so there can also be arahats who have none of that, no psychic faculties at all, no ability to read into other people's lives, no ability to see into their past lives, no ability to see the arising and passing away of beings. However, still have the destruction of the taints. Yeah, they are Siddhis. That's right, exactly. None of these are required for the realization of Nibbana, except for... Exactly, exactly. No, no, not necessary. Because they still went through the four jhanas. They went through the first four jhanas. And however they experienced it was, there are, there are these seven different types of people. There's one who's liberated by wisdom, one who's liberated uh, through the deliverance of mind, and there's one who's liberated both ways, and so on. So they went through the jhanas, either the four jhanas or the eight jhanas, experienced cessation and attained the destruction of the tents. Never. Well, as long as you you uh, have stream entry, at least. Exactly. But he didn't have stream entry. So if you have stream entry and above, there's no way you would use these for any kind of misuse. But if you have the powers, that's why these powers should not be developed so early in your practice. Because if they are, and you still have greed, hatred, and delusion... 
you're going to get stuck and you're going to use them for misdeeds. Very bad karma. The dark side, the Sith. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. When it was necessary, never for showing off, never for whatever, but for inspiring confidence in people or for when there was necessary to protect someone or something like that where it was utilized for good and for benefit only then. Never to show off or, you know, present and things like that. Yeah. So I'm trying to just get a little bit more context or clarity on your question. Just can you kind of... Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It was uh, a different kind of process, let's say, to get to that. Um, You mean he would have just gone to nothingness and from nothingness experienced cessation and then from there. Yeah. So, yes, that is quite possible. He could have done that. And in fact, he had done that. He had also done that. He went through each of the four jhanas. He went through each of the ayatanas. He went through cessation. So he developed and cultivated all of those. So he was somebody who did everything. He did it all, essentially. But on the night of his awakening... He basically went through this process to awaken these particular faculties because those were required for, let's say, a Buddha or that, that is possible for a Buddha, first and foremost. And to the extent where he could do it, you know, immediately, just like that, without even thinking about it. He went through this process essentially to learn why suffering arises or how suffering arises i should say and so he looked at his own life and what were the causes and conditions for that suffering and he went back for in time and saw all of the different causes and conditions or as far as he could he went 
to see the arising and passing away of various kinds of suffering and the causes and conditions of suffering. One way. Then he saw that it applied to all beings. And then he saw that it happened, he saw that process happening in terms of dependent origination in this life. And then he let go when he understood that when you let go of these taints, then you experience the total cessation of suffering. He would be liberated by wisdom in the fourth jhana. But then he was able to go into uh, the ayatanas and experience that, then go through cessation and experience that, and so on. Yeah. Well, I guess I did answer everyone's questions uh, in the end. Oh, more, of course. Uh, this is a much more mundane question. Yeah. Uh, you know, some time ago, you were mentioning how effort, too much effort, can lead to um, restlessness, right? And so, um, like, say you're trying to do a longer sit. How do you, like, how do you, criteria towards the end when you try to make it through? How do you prevent too much effort? From from where? You mean in general, how do you prevent any yeah. trying so hard? Yeah, especially when you're trying to do a longer sit. Yeah, that, that, that's what you have to understand. Doing a longer sit doesn't mean you have to make more effort to do a longer sit. Okay. Actually, the best way to do a longer sit is to relax even more. That's the only way you can get a longer sit done. Or I should say that's the best way to do it because it's so comfortable. So if you are able to relax, then your mind and your body are tranquil enough to be able to, to sit for extended periods of time. Right? But if you try very hard in the beginning, it, you sit for 30 minutes and that's exhaustive. If you're relaxed and you're tranquil and you don't try so hard and then you make adjustments accordingly, then you're able to sit for longer. And then when the mind feels like it wants to get up, what do you do? You say, let's try another five minutes and relax. Five minutes turns into 30 minutes. And if you notice at the end of that, there's a lot, rest, lot of restlessness, what do you do? Cycle back through equanimity. This is how you do it. And you continue doing it that way. That's the way to go through it. Yeah. I'm just curious, you said last night Bhante was born in I told you I'm not answering any uh, questions. Okay, I'll ask another question that's not related to that. Um, you can't ask any kind of speculative questions about that either. But go ahead. Uh, let me ask. This, ask. Is se this is separate. But so if one were born an anagami, that's possible, right? In this life? Yeah. No way. No. You're never reborn in, in the human world as an anagami. Okay. Yeah. As a sakadagami. As a sakadagami, it's possible. The first three fetters. In the Sakadagami, right, they would have let go of the first three fetters and they would have the other two fetters, the craving, the sensual craving and the aversion, but it would be much, much, much reduced. Okay. I mean, I could, I could go through the different types of people so you understand where they're born and how they're born, just for your understanding. And it's going to be on the exam, so take notes. <laughs>
identify a particular way that you experience happiness within the body. Yeah. And that we spread it and permeate that sukha in the body. Maybe we should discuss that sukha. Are you talking about the one which is uh, with the, the similes? With like the white cloth and the... Yeah, I have to find that sutta. We should definitely look at that one. Do you remember it offhand? It's in Samanyapala, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, but I'll, I'll take a look at it and see. Yeah. Oh, I was going to answer your question about uh, the different types of people. So I'll go through it very briefly. There is uh, three kinds of Sotapanas, Sakadagamis, uh, different kinds of five different kinds of Anagamis, and I still haven't found the variations of Arhats, but I'll get back to you on that. Uh, the three types of Sotapanas are the Sotapana, which has rebirth up to seven lifetimes, there is the Sotapanna, which ha is the Kolankala Sotapanna, which is somebody who attains up to three lifetimes. They go through three lifetimes before they have final attainment. And then there is the Ekabiji Sotapanna, which is the one-seater. And that is a, a super Sotapanna. You know? Basically, they only have one more lifetime. And from there, they will have final awakening. Then the Sakadagami, so the question is, what is the difference between a Sotapanna and a Super Sotapanna and a Sakadagami? Right? A one-seater and a Sakadagami, because both are reborn one more time before they make an end of their suffering. Well, in the case of a Sakadagami, they can have rebirth in any of the realms of the human realm up to any of the six sensual heavens and from there. Or... In the case in, of the Ekabiji, the one-seater Sotapanna, they always come back to this human life and from there attain final awakening. But a Sakadagami's mindfulness is stronger than an Ekabija Sotapanna, which means they have very, very, very less craving and aversion to deal with, and then of course the other fetters. Now, with the anagami, there are five ways they, their destinations are met. So, in the case of an anagami, there is the anagami who then attains parinibbana in the antarabhava, which means from one life to the next life, just before they enter the next life, they are extinguished. Then there is the anagami who attains it through the process of after one life into the next life, into the next realm, Upon landing in that realm, they are extinguished. Then there is the anagami who from one life to the next life, upon landing, they still remain an anagami, but they attain arahatship uh, very quickly. Then there is that uh, anagami who goes from one life to the next life, and they have to make an effort, more effort, to attain arahatship. Then there is the anagami who goes through one to the next realm and has to go upstream through each of the five pure abodes and then at the last final pure abode, they attain extinguishment. Clear? <laughs> I'm going to see if I can, if you allow this question. Uh, 
You, you just mentioned too the the the, the, the Sokopana yeah. that has seven additional lifetimes, mm-hmm. and I up to I, seven, yeah, up to seven. And when I first heard that, you know, I was skeptical. I didn't understand, um, <clears throat> but it did sound like uh, last night you mentioned a number very close to that. So I was curious if you had seen. Uh, I, I guess have have you confirmed that through your own vision? <laughs> <laughs> so, how would hypothetically a sort of honor reduce their number? How would they become a super sort of honor? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, all right, guys. Let's share some merit. (laughs) May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find relief. May all beings share this merit that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, Share this merit of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.